Welcome to Stage 16. This is Sean O'Banion. This is Sean Roberts. And today we're going to discuss a whole bunch of film and television stuff that hopefully you'll find interesting and our opinions on those things. So stick around. here we are, official second episode of the show. Um, Still working on some sound issues. Uh, We're going to fix those up eventually, (laughs) but we're getting better week over week, I think, at least. We're going to start with MGM, who, if not already owned by Amazon, are about to be owned by Amazon. And they're sort of pillaging their vault at, uh, at the MGM studios and pulling up old titles that they can create uh, new material from. So I know one of those is one of Sean Roberts' personal favorites. Uh, so let's, let's talk about that for a second. Listen, pain don't hurt. Fans of, fans of the film Roadhouse will know that line. That is, in my opinion, a classic. Joel Silver, Patrick Swayze, classic from 1989. Did Joel Silver do that? I didn't even realize that. No, it was a Silver Pictures production, my friend. It is the the height of his power, taking anybody and turning them into action heroes. What I love about that film is the simplicity of it. I love that it's not terrorist. It's not, you know, dirty cops. It's just this bouncer in this small town who's basically kicking ass and taking names. And I love everything about that film. So they announced this last week that Jake Gyllenhaal is going to star in a remake and Doug Lyman is going to direct it, which I think is pretty cool. I uh, I kind of wish they wouldn't touch it, but it, I don't think that the original is so... I'm not that beholden to it to where I say you can't remake it. I'd like to see what they do with it. My hope is that they would have to do an R-rated version of it. And as we know, in this day and age, everything, studios love PG-13. So if you're going to do it, it has to be violent. It has to have a lot of nudity, especially female nudity, a lot of cussing, a lot of all that has to be in it because that's what was in the original film. I'm big Jake Gyllenhaal fan, Doug Lyman, very interesting director. Very interesting that he would do something like that. It just kind of doesn't seem in his roadhouse so to speak to do a roadhouse (laughs) remake and i find that really interesting it also tells me that the tom cruise space thing is still many years out which doesn't surprise me since cruise just started filming mission impossible 8 and i'll probably take him two years to get out but yeah doug lyman who's also going has been signed to do the tom cruise uh, space film clearly wanted to fill fill the void here in the next year or two and i'm excited about it i think it'll be fun yeah, he does. He does seem a strange choice, and yet at the same time, I mean, like uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Born Identity have some phenomenal fight scenes and fight choreography. Um, Love and, those and Yeah, he's pretty adept at that kind of stuff. It just in terms of the storyline, it doesn't seem like right up his alley. And for those who don't know, the original '89 film starred Patrick Swayze, uh, Sam Elliott. Kelly Lynch, Ben the the late Ben Gazzara, uh, also uh, late Ben Gazzara as the heavy, and it's it's exactly what you probably think it is. It's a bouncer who gets hired. He's basically the world's greatest bouncer, and he gets hired and sent out to this small town where he's supposed to sort of 
fix the ship, you know, right the ship at this place called the Double Deuce. And um, when he gets there, it is it is about as in bad shape as it can be. The band, the house band, is literally behind <laughs> a fence because people throw beer bottles the at them all the time. So they're in a cage. And, and the uh, band leader is the band leader is blind, by the way. They're still throwing beer bottles at him. Yeah, so and he's Jeff Jeff Healy. I want to say uh, was that's the, right. Yeah, and that's um, right. No. yeah. So it, you know, it's it's nothing. Uh, Heavy. It's not uh, super highbrow entertainment, but is absolutely it's not, entertainment. It's a simple film. It's not high concept. It's a simple film, and I love that. I think that it. I don't. I don't need a roadhouse universe. I just want a film with bouncers, and I don't need. You know, you don't have to set up multiple. Spin-offs. Wait, you don't. Like, you don't want the prequel not. with young Sam Elliott? As interesting as that would be, how would you cast young Sam Elliott? I don't know. He's, he's he's singular. He's singular. You can't recast that role. Well, so the next one that they are going to reboot, uh, this one I believe as a series, is the sort of ultimate revenge uh, relationship movie, Fatal Attraction, which is, of course, uh, Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Ann Archer. Was it Ann Archer? It was Ann Archer. Yeah. So in, in the original, of course, Ann Archer and Michael Douglas are a married couple, have been together for years and years, and he sort of has this one-off fling with uh, Glenn Close, who is just a crazy person. And obviously, the movie was a massive hit, right? What, was, what year was that, Roberts? 1987. It was one of, if not the biggest box office film of that entire year. 1987. And yes. uh, it, yeah. it, it made a lot of men, at least for a period of time, afraid of ever cheating on their wives because they thought they might hook up with a psychopath. <laughs> a bunny boiler, Shame. which is the terminology that came into the lexicon. Look, it changed all my ways. I became a new man. After that <laughs> That's actually Paramount that is rebooting that for their Paramount Plus streaming app. And as we know, these apps are desperate for IP and desperate to get people to purchase to subscribe their apps. And I think that is, uh, I think that's an interesting move. I like Fatal Attraction. I think that that is a timeless story because Lord knows infidelity and crazy people are still out there 35 years later. And I think that that is something that actually really sets itself up as well for a good, like an eight or 10 episode limited series run. I think that you can take a, a film, a two-hour story like that, and I think that there's a, there's a lot there that you can make a very interesting and very compelling uh, series out of that. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think you and I were both pretty young when that was the hot movie. It wouldn't have been something that we would have ended up seeing, but of course we've seen it subsequently over the years on HBO or whatever. Many times. Um, Many times. And so the new series is going to have Lizzie Kaplan. Um People may not be instantly familiar with her, but she was on uh, Castle Rock for Hulu fairly recently. True Blood. Uh, True Blood. Um, she's... A couple I, of Seth Rogen films. She was in The Interview. She was in The Night Before. So a couple of... She's part of that whole Seth Rogen kind of crew. Right. She's a really good actress. And yeah. she's going to play, I think, the Alex role, which is the psychopath role. She is. And when they announced that bit of casting, I thought it made a lot of sense. She is. She's a great actress. She's an interesting actress. She's attractive, but she's not conventionally attractive, which I would say is the same for Glenn Close. So it, it, she's a very talented actress. And I think that that casting is actually pretty spot on. Be interesting to see who they cast 
in the husband role and then in the uh, his wife's role, Ann Archer's role from the original. Those I guarantee you those will be hotly contested uh, roles that people are looking to fill in Hollywood right now because it's a good property. It's a hot IP. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, who is going to follow in Michael Douglas's footsteps? That's not an easy role. I mean, not that Glenn Close is either. That's But Lizzie Kaplan is definitely capable. The other one people might know her from is uh, Showtime's Masters of Sex as one of the co-inventors of the whole scientific study. Um, and she's just really excellent. So, yeah, but whoever's going to step into the Michael Douglas role has some big shoes to fill. And actually, Ann Archer was pretty great back in the day. Too, so she was nom- she was also nominated for an Oscar that year for that film. Wow. Okay. See, I didn't even know that. Yeah, because I was just too young at that point. But uh, yeah, excited to see that. I am not currently a Paramount Plus subscriber. I probably will at least take advantage of a, a free sample or whatever when this when this series launches, which I'm guessing will be quite a while. But yeah, definitely interested in that. So another uh, big sort of announcement came out this week, and I think this is another one that will be years away from actually getting a look at. But uh, Dave Bautista and Jason Momoa are reuniting. Now, of course, they've just recently been in cinemas in Dune, but they're also working together on the Apple Plus TV series C-S-E-E. And in this case, MGM will be the studio after winning a very heated sort of bidding war for what is being called a, quote, buddy action comedy that will throw back to films like Lethal Weapon uh, from back in the day. The difference in this one will be that it will be set mostly in Hawaii. I'm guessing that's leaning towards Momoa's character. Uh, The writer's guy named Adam Tropper. I don't really know his name, although he did write the sort of next big Ryan Reynolds movie called The Adam Project. The idea was actually pitched by... Bautista, Momoa, and Tropper. Bautista at one point tweeted out back in August, I'm not, I'm just going to throw this out there into the atmosphere and see what happens. And he said, here we go. Me and Momoa, lethal weapon type buddy cop movie directed by David Leach. Okay, there it is. Now we wait. We don't know at this moment if David Leach has or will sign on. Of course, David Leach did Hobbs and Shaw spinoff movie from the Fast franchise. But certainly, I mean, it would be possible for him. What do you think about I mean, Absolutely. you you and I are both massive Lethal Weapon fans, so what's your feeling on this? I love the concept. Obviously, Lethal Weapon is but definitely one of our favorite action series of all time. The one thing that I would say, the one fear that I have with all action movies these days, make it R-rated. If you're going to throw it back to the Lethal Weapon days, I want cussing i want violence i want action in it i really hope that the studio will make it as a true buddy cop action film and make it for adults and not water it down to pg-13 i do like the Y setting i have you're absolutely right that absolutely has to do with momoa's background and i'm sure that he insisted that personally i've never been to hawaii but i do love shows that are filmed there because i feel like they're, they're just love letters to postcards to hawaii for the most part and I think that's a great location to set an action movie in. I love that. I just hope, I think if David Lee strikes, that'd be great. And if they make an R-rated script and film it that way and don't go over the top with CG and, you know, actually have some, maybe some real explosions and some real action in it, real car chases, that could be a, an instant franchise right there. It could be three or four of those films. I'd, and I'd see them all. Do you think that, for example, I mean, obviously we're in very different times socially and politically now than we were when the first Lethal Weapon came out 
Shane Black's movies that he's done subsequently sort of in in a similar vein, whether it's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or The Good Guys, have not fared very well. There's kind of buddy, they're detectives, but they're kind of buddy cop movies at their core. Do you feel like the market would still, obviously with these two guys, everybody seems to love these two guys, but do you feel like the market would still be receptive to that genre the way it was back in the day? If it's done well, I think so. Clearly, the buddy cop genre was at its pinnacle in the 80s with the Lethal Weapon films and Tango and Cash and many other spinoffs from that genre. That w- And even Die Hard 3 kind of became that by putting Sam Jackson in the mix. The, the buddy cop thing was a formula. And it kind of played itself out because there were just too many of them and too many, too many poor ones, frankly. But absolutely. Do I think that 30 years after that genre has been out, would people be interested in a good buddy cop film? 100%. And in fact, I'm not a gigantic fan of Hobbs and Shaw. I know you like that film more than I do. But at the end of the day, yeah. that is a that is a buddy kind of buddy film, buddy cop you know, action film, and it's totally in that vein of genre, and that crushed it, made a ton of money at the box office. So, yeah, I think if it's done well, it would be a big hit. Dave Bautista and Jason Momoa, I think, are both have a lot of charisma, especially Jason Momoa. I think that he just burns charisma and has a lot of personality, and it's just fun to watch. I mean, I, I watch him just in interviews, and he's just, he's a fun guy to, to watch. So, put him in a role where he's maybe funny and is beating people up and got a ton of action. Absolutely. I think that is right in his wheelhouse. Did you ever see Stuber? I did not see Stuber, actually. It's um, it's Camille Nanjiani and, and Dave Bautista. Yeah. And it, it's basically, yeah. I mean, it's a buddy. It's a buddy cop movie. Only one of them's an Uber driver. And it's actually quite fun. It's not, it's definitely... It doesn't get as heavy as, for example, the original Lethal Weapon. It definitely leans more into the comedy. But I think that also bodes well for this because Bautista is a guy who can seemingly handle everything. I mean, like, it's amazing these guys coming out of wrestling, like The Rock and John Cena and now Bautista. They're really quite fun to watch. Their personalities come through, like you were just saying, their charisma. And they're just sort of enjoyable in, in these roles. It's, I guess the only shame is that they're, they're all guys like in their late 40s or something like that. Like, it would have been nice to have these guys when they were a bit younger. Well, I would have to say these guys are in better shape than most people 30 years younger, 20 years younger. So they're, they're aging. They're, they're Hollywood aging. They're not aging like us normal folk. So I think they've got uh, they could they can start a franchise pretty easily right now. And, you know, while we're on the subject of Hobbs and Shaw, I find it really interesting the uh, Instagram the Insta- the Instagram post that Vin Diesel did the plea to Dwayne Johnson. Oh yeah, his little little brother Dwayne to try and pull him back into the Fast and Furious franchise, which, as most people probably have heard, they have not gotten along on the last couple of films they did. They have very different working styles, and they've had a bit of a a, ba- a bit of a battle between each other with certain comments, co- you know, go- flying across the bows at either one of them. And clearly the studio, as they're doing Fast and Furious 10 and 11, which they're going to film together, and it's supposedly the finale of this core series, guarantee you the studio said, look, we want Dwayne Johnson in this film. Vin, as a producer, you better fix this. So Vin sent out 
a post that basically asked Dwayne to come back to the series. But the problem with that is that anybody that know, you know anybody that knows these stories, and I worked on a film with Vin Diesel, so I, I could tell you some stories myself. He's he he's he has a very different working style than Dwayne Johnson, and the post <laughs> that's putting said, it mildly. The post where where he said, "My little brother Dwayne." That's not a good way, probably, to start out by stroking no, Dwayne Johnson. No, ego. it's not, my little that brother. Prob- that probably was not the best way to do it. My feeling is that the studio is definitely applying pressure on Ben, and Justin Lin probably is as well, saying, "Look, get him back. I don't care what you have to do." I actually hope Dwayne Johnson comes back to the series. What would be hilarious if Dwayne came in and said, yes, I'll absolutely do it. I want $50 million and I want $25 million of that to come out of Ben's salary. And basically, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that'd be hysterical. And not only him. that, but you have to shoot my stuff on a green screen and comp me into scenes with him because I'm not going to be around him. <laughs> right. If I have to be around him, the salary is $75 million. So I, actually, I would love it if Dwayne would publicly put that out there to let people see that. So I, I'll be very curious. See, I actually I, I can see a deal being worked out to where Dwayne Johnson comes in. I think it may be kind of exactly what we just talked about, where they're mostly filmed separately. Maybe they have a public you know reconciliation but we will really know behind the scenes that it's all bs that basically the studio pulled a dump truck up to dwayne johnson's house and said we'll do it however you want to do it but we want you in this film well that's the question uh, is would the dump truck uh work in this case because he's already he's doing he's doing fine like you like you said in our last episode he makes 443 movies a year and he gets 20 million for each so it's like you know what are they actually going to have to do to entice him? I, I actually, so I worked with Dwayne. I haven't worked with Vin, but Vin's behavior, I guess, is notorious on in within the business. And for anybody who doesn't know sort of the backstory here, I think at one point, Vin just was being Vin, which means that he wasn't showing up on time. And there were a lot of rumors about how he was treating his fellow cast members on the, on the Fast series. And The Rock came out publicly, which he's since said is probably a mistake, but he came out publicly and he called one of the cast members, one of the male cast members, and though he didn't identify that male cast member, he called him a candy ass um, and said, I'm not putting up with people who are disrespectful and don't care for their crew members and their cast and whatever. Everybody in the industry, including Sean Roberts and I, instantaneously knew exactly who the candy ass was in that quote. Um and so we were all like, wow, shots fired. Okay, well, that's the end of Dwayne in that franchise then. And then, of course, he went off and made Hobbs and Shaw, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Roberts, made more money than the last Fast movie. It may not have made more money, but it did at least as well. If that, I, I don't know exactly what it was, but it did. It made Fast and Furious franchise money, without a doubt, and had nothing to do with Ben. Ben was not even a producer on it. And I guarantee you there's more bitterness right there. Yeah. And Dwayne was a producer on it. That's part of the Hawaii angle for that. And they are still universal, I think, with Chris Morgan, who I don't think is on the mainline Fast franchise anymore, is doing other movies with Dwayne now. He's he's written Dwayne's Christmas movie that Jake Kasdan is going to direct for Netflix. He is supposedly in very early conversation about doing another Hobbs and Shaw movie. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a pretty uh, twisted little scenario there. 
I don't, I agree with you. I don't see Dwayne getting back on a set standing there with Vin Diesel. I think there will be some CG trickery if it happens at all. And yeah, I think the dump truck is probably right. Boatloads of cash. And I also think that there is a good possibility that he does come back in a very small role. And it will be maybe he's working on the film for one week in front of a green screen and Vin's not even in the same studio a lot with him. And that, but that'll be enough for the studio to be able to market the film with Dwayne Johnson in it, and that's probably all they want. Again, I hope that he had, I hope that he asked for an absorbent amount of money just to mess with everybody, basically, because at the end of the day, Dwayne Johnson did really revitalize that franchise with Fast Five, which was, to this day, in my opinion, still the best of that entire series. And this series owes a lot to Dwayne Johnson, in my opinion. So it's a shame. But I also think that that's why Vin got upset, because he could see that Johnson was basically hijacking the series to a degree. And, uh, yeah, with uh, with Vin's ego, which is one, definitely one of the largest in the industry, it's basically bigger than the state of Texas, um, I don't think he was happy with that. Yeah. Um, so... Did you hear about this Channing Tatum project? I did, with him and uh, Tom Hardy, about uh, the Americans pulling out of Afghanistan. The idea about this seems like they would be playing similar characters to, like, Eric Bana in Black Hawk Down, where the, uh, the, the military starts to pull out, and these two guys, Channing Tatum and Tom Hardy, basically go, well, we're not leaving our Afghani brothers to get executed here, so we're staying behind. That, as a setup for a movie, just sounds awesome to me. It's same here. I think that that absolutely is a good premise. I really like both of those actors. And, yeah, I, that's... I don't know what else to say about that. It's a great concept, and I can't wait can't wait to hear more about it. I'm very interested to see who they end up uh, picking to direct that film. Pretty Scott wild that it that it's come together so quickly with the two of them and, they, and that it's already been announced... I'm a huge Tom Hardy fan, have been for a very long time. Obviously, my first time seeing him was Inception. George Nolfi is going to write this, I think. I like his writing. Um, He's going to be an executive producer as well. Now, he's directed before. I don't know if Universal would give him the keys to the car in this case because this is seeming like it's going to be a pretty big movie. Um, But, uh, yeah, that was just something that crossed my radar. and I was like, wow. Those two guys, okay, cool. I'm already kind of in for that. Absolutely. Day one. Now, I wanted to ask you something else, and this is not – this is TV. We're going to cross the TV. This is not a show I watch, but I know that you're a huge fan of it. Um, Yellowstone came back for its fourth season and had the highest numbers it's ever had, I think 14 yeah. million viewers after they got in their streaming and things like that. So I just wanted to sort of have you talk for a minute about – that show about Costner in particular and how the evolution of what Taylor Sheridan is doing with that show um, might have led to this many viewers in a fourth season premiere. Yeah, I love Yellowstone. I have been watching it since it premiered three years ago, and it took a couple of episodes for me to really get hooked into it. But by the time I was, it's kind of a, a mixture of The Sopranos, meets Dallas. Dallas was a very big show in the 80s, took place on a ranch about this powerful family. It really is a combination of those two worlds meeting. They filmed this show at a ranch in Montana called that the Yellowstone is at. It's, it's absolutely breathtaking. I love 
the cast, and that's another thing too. That show, every single, it's kind of like we, kind of like Succession, which we talked we talked about several times. Every single role in Yellowstone is so well cast, and Costner is absolutely the lead of the show. He's the Tony Soprano of the show, if you will. The show definitely revolves around him but unlike the sopranos he's not in every single scene basically there's episodes where he's only in maybe 10 20 minutes of it and the rest of it are all the other characters and the family members which are all great characters as big a star and as interesting of an actor as costner is there's never a point where he's not on screen where you're kind of asking where's where's costner's character i want to see him again you're so into what these other characters doing it doesn't really matter and what taylor sheridan did the reason the ratings were so high is they ended last season kind of on a who shot jr moment to go back to to call back to dallas again where multiple characters including costner were were shot so but i won't tell you how episode or how season four begins other than to say that all those questions are answered and that's the reason they really built a buzz over the last 16 months because it has not been on since in 16 months of people wondering wow who's alive who did it so yeah, was that a was that time. a COVID delay or something else? No, and no, I tell you, they, I tell you exactly what the delay was. So the show, the first three seasons of the show, all came on in June and ran. It was a summertime show, so everybody was asking the question: Why is the show not premiering until November? Considering they they filmed and wrapped the entire season last fall. The reason for that is Paramount Plus has been filming and with Taylor Sheridan, who's involved in, in basically everything Paramount Plus is doing now, it seems. Mayor, Mayor Mayor of Kingstown. Mayor of Kingstown, as well as a Yellowstone spinoff called 1883. And that's a prequel show. So these shows just went into production this summer and we're filming through the fall. And Mayor of Kingstown is premiering tonight. And 1883 is premiering in December. So the reason they held back on it is so that they could really tie in the marketing of these two new shows, which are going, unlike Yellowstone, which is on the Paramount Network, these shows are going to exclusively be on the Paramount Plus app, which Paramount has really dumped a lot of money into trying to get people to subscribe to this app. So that's the entire reason, which last summer I would love for Yellowstone to come back because everybody was dying to see this show again. But they held on to it so that they could tie it in with their new flagship shows. Wow. Last week during the premiere of Yellowstone, every single commercial break had a behind the scenes, had a different trailer. Premier Kings. It's almost egregious how much they are, how much they're tying the marketing together with it. But I understand why they're doing it. So you had 14 million viewers watching Yellowstone last week. Believe me, everybody is aware of the mayor of Kingstown. There's not there's not a one fan out there that doesn't know everything about this show. And, well, there may there you never know though because it's a it's on Paramount Plus. You know this this idea that like I I just feel like not a lot of people are on there. I didn't adopt partially because you got on early and said they don't have much there. There's not much to look at. And yeah. by the way, for people who don't know, Taylor Sheridan was an actor who never really kind of got a foothold in uh, on that side of the camera. And started writing and just kind of exploded with Helen High Water, Sicario, the, both Sicario films. Uh, and then did uh, he got to direct his first time Wind River with Jeremy Renner, who is now the star yeah. of Mayor of Kingstown. And then he got to direct and write his second film, which was Those Who Wish Me Dead, the Angelina Jolie film that dropped on HBO Max this year. Um, so he's sort of had a meteoric rise. I think he's a phenomenal writer, and and I love Costner, but 
Taylor Sheridan is probably the reason that I am interested in Yellowstone ultimately, and I will get to it. I don't know if I'm interested in Mayor of Kingstown, which a lot of people are going to be confused and thinking it's Mayor of Easttown, the HBO game. I've, I've been saying that. I've been saying that all year long. It's very confusing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a little, it's a little twisty. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm definitely interested in that. And uh, well, I will let you know because the mayor of Kingstown premieres tonight, so I will be watching it. I'm excited about it. All right, all right. So the other thing I did want to mention, Disney. Plus had a big day, and we won't go into it very much, but they apparently had some issues in terms of their material getting online. Some of it was behind a paywall, weirdly enough, and like they had a lot of problems. Uh, but one announcement that did come out is that they shared some art department footage of a confrontation between Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor as Anakin and Obi-Wan. And uh, people sort of went crazy. What they didn't do was really give sort of any indication of the order of things, uh, you know. And and I just, I'm wondering, if you're going to have this day and you're going to promote it in the way that they were doing on, on social media and whatnot, I just find it fascinating that Disney did not have things together enough to do this in a way that I think would make the fans happy. I just... It seems like the general timbre of things on social media was disappointment. What were your thoughts on that, particularly as it relates to the Star Wars stuff? I thought it was fairly underwhelming. They did put out a 20-minute kind of documentary about Boba Fett and his history and why he's become a big deal, which makes total sense since their Boba Fett series premieres next month. But yeah, it was fairly underwhelming. In a minimum, they should have announced when what the next Star Wars series was going to be that's going to premiere after the Book of Boba Fett, which will wrap up its run probably in late February. They could have shown an actual trailer maybe for the Andor series or even Obi-Wan instead of just some of the animatics they did show. Yeah, so... It, it, it was fine. It just was, it was underwhelming considering how hyped up that they made everything leading up to the Disney Day release. I will say this, though. One thing that Disney Plus did right is they announced several days out, and on Disney Day, they released versions of their Marvel films in what's called IMAX Enhanced, which basically means that the aspect ratio opened up to take over the whole screen instead of having the black bars similar to what you would see for these IMAX releases. And I love that. I have a 77-inch Sony OLED. My home theater is phenomenal. And it always bothers me when they have IMAX release films where it does take up the whole scope of the screen. And then when they release it on 4K Blu-ray or streaming, they, they give you the letterbox bars. And I don't understand why they do that when most people have high-end 4K widescreen televisions. So I love that. I, I think Disney Plus is doing a very good job in appeasing cinephiles like myself and like you are, where I want to see it in the highest quality possible. And for them to do that, and hopefully going forward, they will have IMAX enhanced versions of all of their films that were intended to be released in IMAX. I love that. I think that's a great idea. So that that was kind of for me the highlight of the Disney Plus day. And actually, I hope that as more Star Wars films come out in that format, which I believe The Force Awakens had a few scenes that were filmed with IMAX cameras. I would like to see them also do that 
for at a minimum the force awakens because that definitely had sequences filmed with imax camera so i'm hoping that they do they do release an imax version of that as well in the app yeah that would be cool i remember back in the day when the dark knight came out on blu-ray and they preserved the 190 to 1 aspect ratio for every shot which basically was like the opening bank heist and stuff like that it was a huge deal and it was really cool to see those bars drop away and get that full frame um, in all of the Christopher Nolan Blu-ray releases, he's done that. He has released them in, in that IMAX format. And yeah, big fan of that. Big fan. The other thing that Disney uh, did do, although not very, I guess, in detail, but they did announce Willow, the Willow series, uh, for any fans of that original film. And online, on Instagram, Warwick Davis introduced the new cast, the younger cast members, one of which is Tony Revolori from a lot of Wes Anderson movies. Interestingly, Gavin O'Herlihy, who most people will know as Eric from Willow, who's the guy that tells Mad Mardigan to sit in his cage and rot, uh, he just passed away at age 70. So we lost the cast member of the original Willow and gained a bunch of new cast members for the Willow series, which is being written by John Kasdan and produced by Ron Howard. I'm not sure. Actually, I think his daughter isn't isn't Bryce Dallas directing a bunch of those or the I pilot? think that's correct. Yeah. I believe that's correct, yeah. Yeah. So, um I think unless you have anything, I think that's it for for this uh episode. If you uh enjoyed what you hear uh or heard, <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter. We're at stage 16 podcast, Instagram stage 16 pod. Uh we are on that Zuckerberg hell site called Meta now, no longer Facebook. <laughs> so Meta, Meta owns Instagram, by the way. Yeah, well, they, they do. And they also own WhatsApp, which also says a Meta company now, which is sort of ridiculous. But anyway, we will uh, we will come back. Do you have something else? Or are you good? Just that on our next episode, I want to talk about Red Notice. And we're going to talk about the Rocky Four director's cut this slide just put out. There you go. We will talk about those. I will watch both of them, and we'll talk about it next week. So thanks for listening to Stage 16, and we'll catch you then.